Before we get started with this episode of Walking with Dante, let me just say that this podcast has gone on for three years, more than three years. I never intended this podcast to overtake my life, but it has. I'd like to ask for a little help. I have a great deal of costs associated with this podcast, including fees to join scholarly journals to get library access, including hosting fees, streaming fees. I have to buy the copyrights to the music, the sound effects, and I have to put the thing up and let it live somewhere. So I have to pay for those services, too. All of that has eaten into the budget, and I have turned down sponsors in favor of asking for your help. So before we get started, let me just tell you that there is a PayPal link both in the show player itself and in the notes to this podcast. If you would like to donate to this podcast and support it, that would be terrific. I'd say a dollar, a euro, a Canadian dollar per episode. That'd be fantastic. Half a dollar, 50 cents. Um, you know, half a quid uh, for an episode, pretty fantastic, too, if you have enjoyed the journey. Even if you don't, I'm still going to continue on this passion project. I'm simply asking for a little help for something that I had no intention of overwhelming my life onto the episode. Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked to the end of Canto 6 of Purgatorio. Can you believe we got here? This has been a bear of a canto, mostly because of my reticence or (laughs) what? My resistance? How's that? My resistance to the canto. But we're at the end. I want to read the final lines of the canto, lines 127 through 151, my English translation. As always, you can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can print it off. You can make notes on it on your own, or you can continue the conversation there with me. This is, again, the end of the invective in Canto 6 of Purgatorio. If that doesn't make any sense, well, gosh, I suggest you back up through some episodes before this and figure out where we are. But I'm going to assume you know where we are, and we're going to end it all up and then talk about my resistance, talk through this passage, and talk about some interesting ways this passage parallels Inferno, Canto 6. So let's get started. My Florence, well may you be contented with this digression since it doesn't touch you, thanks to the travails of your own people. Many others have justice on their hearts, so much so that they slow down with great deliberation before letting the arrow fly from the bow. But your people get it right in their mouths. Many refuse to bear the public good, but your people respond without even being asked, crying out, I'll shoulder it. Now you might as well rejoice, for you've good reason to. You're rich, you're at peace, and you're so wise. If I speak the truth, the facts can't hide it. Athens and Sparta, having made the old laws and created an ordered civic life, gave the tiniest hints on a good life, at least when compared to you, who proved so crafty that what you spin in October doesn't even last until the middle of November. How many times in recent memory have you changed your laws, money, political offices, and fashions all to rehabilitate your citizenry? After you've reflected well, you'll come to see 
that you're like a sick woman who can't find any rest in her feather bed, but tries to ease her pain by tossing this way and that. Well, that's the end of it. And let me say that it goes completely off the rails. If you remember, we had been at passages about some emperor, a holy Roman emperor, German Albert, who could come down and set your Rome and your Italy to rights. Now we turn finally at the end of Canto VI to my Florence, a huge change. The poet's sarcasm goes completely off the rails. So let's talk about the utter sarcasm in the passage. Let's talk a little bit about that whole spinning in October and lasting until November because it's very important to know in the face of Dante's own life. And let's talk about that last image, the woman tossing around in a feather bed and not being able to get comfortable before we turn to the big questions of the parallels between this canto and Inferno 6 and then the questions of canto 6 as a whole in Purgatorio. So those opening 12 lines are extraordinarily sarcastic. My Florence, and as I've already told you, you should hear that as a resonance against your Rome, German Albert, your people, your place that you should have set right. Now it becomes very personal. My Florence, well may you be contented that this, and notice how the poet describes what he's doing, this digression doesn't touch you. That digression is important because it seems as if here, when the sarcasm gets thickest, the poet seems to realize that his own poetic strategy has lost the narrative thread. And that little word digression there, it does let us know that the poet thinks that there's something off the rails about this. It's not going in the standard trajectory of the walk across the universe. He says, you know, you don't have to worry about it thanks to the travails of your own people. And now the sarcasm just drips. Many others have justice on their hearts, so much so that they slow down with great deliberation before letting the arrow fly from the bow. I mean, people think about justice and think about what is a just life. And so before they fire that arrow that can kill someone, they pause for a moment and think, is this right? But as he says, your people get it right in their mouths. You're not firing the bows. You're catching the arrows with your mouths, which is a bloody and awful image and also a reverse of the initial bit. The initial bit is about people putting arrows in bows, right? And then waiting to fire them. Then the last line of that tercet turns it all around and the people of Florence are getting the arrow in the mouth. I, I would say to you that this metaphor is mixed up. It's, it then should be that the, you know, uh, the people of Florence are just letting the arrows fly one after the other as fast as they can. But it turned and flipped on its head. I'm not sure that that's exactly so wonderfully crafted. Because, again, I think the sarcasm is going out of control. It goes on many refuse to bear the public good. Now it's reversed. The last tercet, it was that people slowed down before they fired the bow. So they were kind of 
better than people in Florence. Now it's that other people are worse than people in Florence. Many refuse to bear the public good, but your people respond without even being asked, crying out, I'll shoulder it. Now, oh my gosh, the sarcasm is so thick that it's not even irony. It's just utter vitriol. It's retributive sarcasm. The, you know, wow, you, you Florentines are so great. You just think you'll bear every public burden. Now you might as well rejoice for you've good reason to, it says. You're richer at peace and you're so wise. Well, here's the problem. At this moment that Dante's writing, Florence is rich. Florence is relatively at peace. Dante's on the run in exile. But in Florence itself, this is actually pretty much the truth. You're so wise. Okay, maybe that's not the truth. But now, if you notice, the sarcasm has changed again. In fact, what the poet is saying is true, but it's true and shouldn't be true. You shouldn't be rich. You shouldn't be at peace. You shouldn't be wise because of all the machinations and political chicanery that you're pulling off. This is all rather unbalanced in my books. You may disagree with me, and I hope you do disagree with me. But for me, this has reached a place where it is utterly creaking back and forth. It's hard to figure out which direction the sarcasm is lying. And in fact, the metaphors and even the directionality of the message are changing and flipping from tercet to tercet. It's hard to all pin it down. And then it turns out and turns directly back to the poem comedy and to the poet Dante. The passage continues, Athens and Sparta, having made the old laws and created an ordered civic life, gave the tiniest hints on how to live a good life, at least when compared to you. Let's stop right there. We're back at Justinian. Remember earlier in the invective, we had this whole uh, encomium, this whole hymn of praise to Justinian and his legal codes. Well, Athens and Sparta aren't exactly Justinian references, and yet when Justinian was the emperor of the Roman Empire, as it existed in the East, Justinian oversaw what became of Athens and Sparta. So there's a little bit of a connection with that. It's not a direct connection, but let's say in Dante's mind, it's probably all the East. So we are wrapping back toward Justinian. And in fact, in Justinian's Institutes, in Book 1, Chapter 2, Line 10, there's a line that identifies Athens and Sparta as the founders of common jurisprudence or human jurisprudence. Does Dante know that Athens and Sparta were bitter enemies? Does he know about the Peloponnesian Wars? He certainly does not know Thucydides. It's unclear exactly what he knows. He probably knows something about warfare on the Greek landscape. But whether he knows what you and I know, now that we know, Thucydides, it's a little unclear. He's holding them up via Justinian's Institutes as the founders of common, or we might now say in the 21st century, human jurisprudence. And he's doing this for a certain reason. Not only is he wrapping back into his own invective and into what he's already said in this passage, but he's doing it because he's wrapping back on himself. He goes on. 
you prove so crafty that what you spin in October doesn't last until the middle of November. The political changes that led to Dante's exile happened between October and November of 1301. So this reference is getting very close to the poet's bones. How many times in recent memory, the invective goes on, have you changed your laws, money, political offices, and fashions to rehabilitate your citizenry? Well, Dante was banished in 1302 along with the white Gelfs. So he's talking about his experience. He is part of the renovation, the rehabilitation in which Florence has continually tried to reinvent itself by throwing out people or, as he puts it, spinning stuff in October that falls apart in November. You may want reforms, but ultimately those reforms lead to the exile of people like Dante. Here it seems to me that the sarcasm lands and hits its final moment. It hits its final moment against the poet's bones, against Dante's own experience. And again, that is what makes comedy great. Dante is not writing a giant poem about the known universe away from himself, outside of his body. Instead, it's always coming back to his personal experience, which makes it incredibly close to the germination of the modern age. This entire canto ends with this unbelievable image. After you've reflected well, you'll come to see that you're like a sick woman who can't find any rest in her feather bed, but tries to ease her pain by tossing this way and that. After all of this, uh, what do I want to say, back and forth with tonality, all this jumping around, the sarcasm, actually kind of, in my books at least, losing control, it all falls down into a really well-placed and well-said image. Although, and here's the although, we are heading toward a moment of consummate misogyny ahead of us. And that this is a sick woman who can't find rest is a little bit of a foreshadowing of a moment of horrendous misogyny that lies in front of us. But let's just leave that off and pretend we don't know that that's about to happen. You heard it on our read-through of Cantos uh, 6, 7, and 8. But if you didn't hear it there and you don't remember it, okay, let's pretend to wipe the slate clean and say, this is a really great image, that finally at the very end you picture Florence as a featherbed, rich, well-off, and this ill woman in it, tossing about and unable to get comfortable. And of course, this leaves us back in the passage, because before the invective started to wind up, we heard about Pierre de la Brosse, who came up to the pilgrim Dante and clamored for his attention. And we heard about the Lady of Brabant, and how Pierre de la Brosse was put to death by court intrigue, and the Lady of Brabant better watch out, lest she end in a worse place. 
So there's a way in which that narrative sequence of the soul's pressing against the pilgrim as he leaves those who died violent deaths is wrapped back at the end of Canto Six structurally with this reference to a woman tossing in a bed. At least it's two references to women, and women are few and far between in comedy, except for Beatrice, who lies ahead of us, but that's another story entirely. Women are mostly few and far between in comedy, so there is a way in which this passage kind of wraps us back toward that narrative moment where we ended with the Lady of Brabant all the way back up in line 23 of Canto 6. Canto 6 of Purgatorio is directly related to Canto 6 of Inferno. Remember Canto 6 of Inferno? It's the gluttons. And in the gluttons, there's Chaco. And Chaco sits up in the muck and the hail and the feces and the sweat and the vomit and all that stuff that he's in. And he sits up and he then talks to the pilgrim and predicts the strife of whites and blacks in Florence. Canto 6 of Inferno is about Florentine strife. Canto six of Purgatorio is about the finishing up of the matter of those who died violently and then a turn to the invective about Italian, not just Florentine strife, but Italian strife that ends with this Florentine moment. It's then clear that these two cantos are running in parallel. You'll notice that in Inferno 6, Chaco gives his big prophecy about whites and blacks. And then if you remember, he kind of crosses his eyes or gets a funky look on his face and falls back into the muck, as it says, to not rise again, not speak again until the last judgment. He falls back in stupid silence. Here in this canto, as a parallel, we do get a falling back image, the woman in the bed. But in this case, it's not silence, and it's not silence until the apocalypse. It's tossing and turning indefinitely, which means we've torqued that image from the, what, the the long wait for the apocalypse to a kind of present discomfort that seems to have no end. Chaco did seem to have a hope. Remember, as he pronounces about the whites and the blacks and the strife, he says, two men are just, or there are two just men. We talked a lot about this in those episodes in Canto 6 of Inferno, but it's a hope that there are at least two just men running around. In Canto 6 of Purgatorio, there appear to be no just men. That hope of some kind of future salvation is missing because even Albert and potentially his successor, who would be his son, Henry VII, are unable to effect any change. So while there may have been two just men in Inferno 6, in Purgatorio 6, those two men are ineffective at bringing an end to the strife. And wish one more thing, at the end of Inferno 6, after Chaco falls back, Virgil launches into a disquisition on the apocalypse. It's all about whether people will feel more pain or less in the apocalypse, and they kind of talk through what it will be like at the end of time. You'll notice that there's no talk of apocalypse here. That final judgment is missing from the passage, and here's what I think. 
because it's in the passage. The apocalyptic judgment wished for in Inferno 6 is present here in this invective. I think this is part of what's going on. There's no final answer toward the apocalypse here, no waiting for that final day of judgment when things will be set right. Instead, the poet is bringing the apocalyptic fury with him in tow to this present moment and dropping it here. Not a future resolution, but a present moment of rage. And I think that contrast is really important. It may show us something about what the poet is learning. It may show us that the poet is learning not to put all hope on the future apocalypse, but that the poet himself may be able, through his own words, to effect some kind of change, although those words are pretty much out of control in my reading. There's ways we can look at this. So let me talk through those ways to finish off this episode of our podcast and this episode on the end of Canto Six of Purgatorio. What can we say about Canto Six of Purgatorio? What we can say is that it certainly descends toward irony, toward sarcasm, toward ranting, <laughs> toward a little bit of, uh, shall we say, sloppy poetics, especially as the rant gets rolling forward. But we have to constantly ask ourselves, where is the irony here? We talked about this a little bit in the last episode with the call toward Jove. Is there a substructure of irony here? That is, the poet's rage will not ultimately change things. I'm not sure I can get to that answer given this passage. I wish I could, and in my head I rationally can get there. You know, all this rage is not going to actually add up to any change, but I don't see any textual justification for that in the passage in front of me. All I see is the rage, and I do see a question of control, and that is an interesting question. I want to come back to that in just a second, that bit of the control factor. What I think we can say, and I wrestle with this, oh, you should have seen me sitting at my desk, <laughs> tearing my hair out over Canto 6 at Purgatorio and trying to make sense of it. And what I think I've finally come down to is that this Canto is about being a different kind of poet from Sordello and Virgil. Sordello arrives on the scene. He's disconnected. We don't actually know what category he fits in. It's going to get even more complicated in the next canto. Virgil is there. They embrace. And then Dante, to the side of them, launches into this giant invective. This is saying to me, I am not a troubadour poet. I am not an epic tragedian. I'm a different kind of poet. I am a politically engaged poet, a politically engaged poet with the apocalyptic wrath of God sitting on my shoulder. And by doing this, I can speak prophetically in ways that Sordello and Virgil could never speak. When I Again, just to go back to what I've said a million times, I don't mean prophetically as in I can see the future. I mean prophetically in the biblical tradition. A prophet is someone who diagnoses current ills and then prescribes remedies or possibly future remedies. But a prophet is at heart a diagnostician of injustice. And I think in that prophetic tradition from the Bible, that's what Dante is setting himself up to be. That's the poet 
that he wants to be. Now, there's one quibble here, and here's the quibble I can make. You could say that there's a loss of control here because Dante is learning to become that poet. That is, he is not yet that poet. And if you want to say that, this is getting a little bit suppositional and it's getting a little bit off the text, but mm, let me just have this for a minute. If you want to say that, then you have two directions you can head. You can say that, in fact, Dante is learning to be the prophetic poet and we're watching him learn here in real time and he doesn't quite have mastery of the prophetic voice yet. Instead, he has the tonality, he has the stance, he has the righteous indignation, he has the belief in justice behind him based on both classical laws, Athens, Sparta, Justinian, and on biblical laws. He's got all that underneath him, so he can start down this path, and we're watching him kind of start down it. Or you can say, and I'm not very much in favor of this, you can say that Dante the poet is so in control that he's showing us how he became that kind of poet. That is, he's showing us this invective at this moment to say, well, you know, when I started out, I didn't exactly have it in hand to do it right. So I'm going to show you what it was like when I started out being the prophet poet I would become. I think that's too far. That's positing too many ifs in a row, and I can't actually rest on that conclusion. But I could say, and I could get there from here, that I'm watching the poet Dante do this in real time. Remember, medieval manuscripts are not revised the way modern manuscripts are. We're watching a poem happen in real time in front of us, and perhaps... This is part of the coming to terms with a different kind of poetry. And we're watching kind of initial moves toward this kind of prophet-poet stance that ultimately Dante wants for himself. I think that might be the way to finally come to terms with Canto VI. It breaks the narrative purposefully. It does so a little ham-handedly. The irony gets a little too thick. The sarcasm actually goes out of control. But then again, it does end on a rather brilliant image of a woman sick in a beautiful feather bed but unable to get comfortable. That might actually, and oh gosh, you know I'm going here, might be a meta moment for the poem. Maybe the poem itself is becoming a beautiful feather bed that the poet himself is still figuring out how to get comfortable in. He's still tossing and turning a bit in order to be the poet fully in control of comedy. You knew I was going to get there, didn't you? You knew I'd get to a meta point. Well, I can't help myself. I got there. And <laughs> I think this is the way I finally wrestled through Canto Six. It was a long time for me to come to terms with this thing, but now I see it as a much more interesting structure than I did when I started reading comedy Oh, about 40 years ago. 
So it goes with Canto 6, and so we go off into the distance to find Canto 7 and come back to the story, because the story does lie in front of us. Let me warn you that Canto 7 is also complicated, but in different ways. It, too, seems to break into halves, but the halves are a little more coordinated with each other. We'll be working on that in Canto 7 ahead as we move through the narrative and then into a long passage of disquisition on the rulers who end up in purgatory. So stick with me. I'm Mark Scarborough, and we're walking step-by-step through this thing, and I'm glad you're here. I look forward to stepping back into the story as it flows underneath us in Canto 7 of Purgatorio, up next on Walking with Dante. (laughs) 